you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 2. To all of you online and in-house, welcome, welcome. We're talking about that first love this morning. Now, I'm not talking about the first love in your, your history, but I'm talking about the first love in terms of importance, that love, our, uh, the, uh, the first love, our top love, our most important love, our love which is above all other loves. Some people never find that first love. Funny story, two friends who lived in the West Virginia mountains talking together one day. One of the fellows asked, Horace, why did you never get married? Horace answered, well, I thought about it several times, but things just never worked out. The first girl was this pretty little redhead, but my mother didn't like the way she talked. And my second girlfriend was a cute blonde who sang in the hillbilly band, but when I brought her over, my mother didn't like the way she looked. And so then I tried to find a girl that would please my mother. And I finally found a young lady down in Charleston who looked exactly like my mother, talked exactly like my mother. She even walked like my mother. And I was sure she'd be able to please my mother, but things went wrong again. So I just gave up on the whole idea. And his friend said, well, what went wrong the last time? Didn't your mother like her? And Horace said, oh, yes, mother thought she was perfect. Dad couldn't stand the sight of her. Some people never find their first love. But that is not the case with Christ and his followers. God has designed something mysteriously wonderful between him and you. Between him and his children. Something inexpressibly beautiful to happen between Jesus and those who surrender to Jesus. In fact, this connection we have in faith in Christ is referred to in God's word as a marriage. Christ the groom and the church, his bride. It's not a surprise that the very first words from Jesus' mouth to John, John's ears in this vision in heaven was Jesus wanting John to get word to his bride, the church. Je Jesus says, John, I want you to write on a scroll what you see and then send this specific word to my bride, my body of believers that are meeting in the city of Ephesus. So John recorded what I'm reading to you right now, Jesus' words. Look at the screens. These are the words, says Jesus, of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. 
Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This church in Ephesus was a diligent, hardworking church. It was a church that persevered through the years. It was a church that refused to negotiate with wickedness. A church that tested false claims and exposed them. A church with strength and endurance. But it was a church that left her first love. The church served and sacrificed but failed to keep Jesus first. They had marvelous works, but they were no longer motivated out of their love for Christ. Now, this scenario you may think is uncommon. Unfortunately, it's all too common. They began their walk with Christ, moving forward out of their love for Him, but somewhere along the way, in, in facing opposition, in fighting evil, resisting false teaching, the emphasis changed from loving and following Christ to battling the non-believer. Being consumed with fighting can take its toll on loving. Being consumed with working can take its toll on playing. And just like a spouse can be consumed with providing for the family and serving the family and protecting the family, it's possible and sometimes all too common that the family can actually be neglected, neglected being with the family. Sometimes our preoccupation with the wickedness around us in our society, in our culture, in our politics, in our nation, makes us think that that's our biggest problem. That's what I need to focus on. Man, we have evil everywhere. But you know, our biggest problem has always been not without, but within. <laughs> our biggest problem has always been failing to grow in our walk with the Lord. That's the big one. Frankly, look at this. This life is not primarily about combating against what's wrong. Not primarily. It's primarily about living more and more in the awareness of the presence of the Father. It's about walking with Him, our first love. Jesus' words to John, if you can kind of read between the lines on what he's saying here, can you almost feel Jesus' broken heart? Oh, you're doing this, you're doing that. You're doing... But you've left me. You, get, you, you almost feel Jesus, and you almost see a tear come down. And I wonder if when the Ephesian brethren read this, I wonder if it broke their heart like they could tell that it broke his. There's such a balance to be found between faith and works between grace and truth, between love and deeds. Both are needed in following Christ, but one is definitely more. 
One is definitely first. One is definitely foundational. One is to be the initiator to the other. Faith produces works. Grace leads us into truth. Love is something upon which deeds are built. But without love, all else is for nothing. When was the last time you read the paraphrase on the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? Look at the screen. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries, making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Hey, the work, the truth, the deeds are desperately needed in our world, but they are designed to find expression out of our love first for God. Joshua Blackman has made a great analogy between salt and Christianity. Okay, check that. Jesus started this, but he built on it. He called us the salt. But look at this. Sodium by itself is a highly flammable and explosive substance. Chlorine by itself is a poisonous gas. These two elements alone can be very dangerous, but together they form a compound that we can't live without, salt. Now, if love or deeds are left to themselves, they can be dangerous and unstable. If sodium could be linked to love and that love, that sodium, was left by itself, it can be flammable and passionate to the point that I'm just loving and I just connect with everything and I, I tolerate anything and I become this spineless fire that says anything's good. But chlorine linked to deeds, you leave your chlorine deeds alone and it can become a noxious gas of self-righteousness that suffocates everyone it comes in contact with. But when love and deeds become a compound, it's the salt of the world. It flavors, it preserves life. Serving others without loving can degenerate. It can degenerate to a situation that was very similar centuries ago in old England. Augustine of Canterbury insisted that the 3,000 monks of Bangor, Wales, would strive to evangelize the Saxons. You've got to tell them about Jesus. You've got to tell them what he's done. You've got to explain to them the cross. But the monks refused, saying... We will not preach the faith to this cruel race who have treacherously driven our ancestors from this country. And Augustine said, Since you will not show them the way of life, 
I'm sure they will show you the way of death. And it was prophetic. Years later, Ethelfrid invaded Wales, and many of those very monks were massacred. They were excellent haters. And their light actually became snuffed out. Hate doesn't shine. Only love does. Warren Wearsby wrote, Labor is not a substitute for love, neither is purity a substitute for passion. The church must have both if it's going to please him. Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus are worthy of our consideration. We might even adapt a prayer that's been attributed to Joan of Arc. Look how she prayed. If I'm in your truth, God, keep me there. If I'm not, God, put me there. In this balance, let me not leave my first love. Isn't that the goal? Well, maybe since this whole thing is kind of a comparison in the marriage, maybe what we really need is a, a, a great strong word of truth, some sort of marital advice. Look what Migna McLaughlin said. A successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. Isn't that the, the objective of our earthly marriages? It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if that would be that way with these physical relationships, that it would be that much more in our holy union with Christ? Perhaps this was some of what the Apostle Paul was getting at. You know, when he wrote his letters to these different churches, it's kind of interesting to see what Jesus told John to say in a revelation that came sometime in the 90s A.D. And then much before that, some probably in the early 60s, Paul, Paul would write to this same church that Jesus was having John give this word to. So what, what would be Paul's word to this church? Do you think maybe... He perceived in the spirit that this might be an area of weakness for them. That they might be tempted to leave their first love. That he could see something. They were diligent. They were getting after it. The Ephesian church had a lot going for it. But, but Paul could see. So look how he prays. This is in the third chapter beginning with verse 14 from the Passion Translation. I love this translation. Look what he says. Paul prays, So I kneel humbly in awe before the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect Father of every father and child in heaven and on earth. And I pray that he would unveil within you the unlimited riches of his glory and favor until supernatural strength floods your innermost being with his divine might and explosive power. Then by constantly using your faith, the life of Christ will be released deep inside you and the resting place of his love. The resting place of his love will become the very source and root of your life. Then you will be empowered to discover what every Holy One experiences, the great magnitude and astonishing love of Christ in all its dimensions. How deeply intimate and far-reaching is His love. How enduring and inclusive it is. Endless love. 
beyond measure, that transcends our understanding. This extravagant love pours into you until you are filled to overflowing with the fullness of God. I believe the emphasis is clear. May our Lord Jesus set us on fire like we've never known, that we will love him more as life goes on, so that in all our days we will forever be placing him as our first love again. Father, whatever word of application that we can receive individually and as a congregation to what you said to these saints that met in Ephesus so long ago, oh, Father, saturate us with the truth that you want us to receive. Let us never move away from everything that we do growing out of our love for you. Let that be foundational. We sing this truth, Father, and pray to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, church, let's stand.